0: Well, I think fall is here, or at least it's uh, upon us. Had just a few mornings that felt nice and a little bit cool. And I know on the calendar officially fall is here. I don't know about you, but but uh, I'm not really a fan of the 95 degree weather. And when it cools off, one of our favorite places in the house is our den because we have this uh, big fireplace in there and Suzanne and I both love to sit around there and just drink coffee, and watch the fire and read by the fire. I don't know what it is about. About fire, I'm not a pyromaniac, but it just never gets old, you know. It's just enjoyable to sit and watch and and listen. But, you know, you take that same fire and move it out of the fireplace and put it in the attic, and immediately you have a state of emergency. What previously was safe and enjoyable is now a, a crisis. In just a moment, it has the potential to get out of hand, burn down your whole house, and if anybody's left in there, to take their life. Sex is like that. Inside the place that God created for it, inside of marriage, it's perfectly safe, beautiful, you can enjoy it for a long time. But you take it outside of there and instantly it has the potential to create a state of emergency in your life. It has the potential to destroy your marriage. It has the potential to alienate you from your kids. It has the potential to bring children in the world that you weren't planning to bring into the world and provide and take care of. It has the potential to expose you to disease that there's no cure for. And sometimes I, I know when people hear messages like this they think, well, he's totally, he's totally exaggerating, completely exaggerating. And young people are engaged in activity before they get married and they think nothing's happened, it's no big deal. People who are married are kind of messing around on the side they said, the Long I Island call, no harm, no foul. When I was in Tennessee, one of the first churches I ever served full-time, there was a family there in our community, and early one morning I got a phone call that their house had burnt to the ground. Their children were good friends of mine, so I went up there and I spent the day at at their children's house. Everybody had converged there, and I heard the story about what had taken place, and that night about 3 a.m., the husband heard something in the kitchen. He thought it was his grandson who was staying with him. And he heard something really loud. And so he got up to see what was going on and when he opened his bedroom door, the entire other end of the house was engulfed in flames. What he'd heard was the ceiling in the kitchen had started to, to collapse. And So he got his grandson who was fortunately on the same end of the house that they were, he got him awake. And him, his grandson, and his wife were able to crawl out one of the bedroom windows. And they, they were standing there in their nightclothes in the yard watching their house burn to the ground. Now, the, the irony of, about that story is that we know that the house had been on fire for at least three or four days. He came home from work the previous week. And he asked his wife, he says, Do you says, Do you smell smoke? Is, is is somebody grilling out? And she says, I she says, yeah. I says, I smell it. She says I walked trying earlier, I couldn't find it. And he said, the next day it got a little stronger. They kind of looked around, they didn't see anything, couldn't find anything. What happened was that on the end of the house where the utility room was, the dryer vent. Had got clogged with lint, and inside the wall, that lint, after heat buildup, had caught fire. But it didn't have any access, or not any good access, to oxygen, so it just it just smoldered. And so, as it worked its way slowly inside the wall, for three or four days, they. They smelt smoke, but they didn't see any fire until finally in the middle of the night, it finally caught blaze and burnt their house down. Many people are experiencing the same thing in flirting with sexual immorality. They really believe there's, there's no consequences and yet they don't realize it, but already their life is smoldering. There'll be young people this year that were planning to finish college, but all of a sudden they're they're now parents. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes two people commit to one another, and they redeem the situation, and they raise a child, and it works out great. The Lord can redeem anything in our life. But many times the young lady just gets abandoned and becomes a single mom. And as the teachers in this room can attest, we see every day the difficulty of being raised without knowing who your father is. And so when we think about why God gave us boundaries for this activity, it was not to encage us. It was not to oppress us. It was to spare us from the pain and the problems that a lifestyle of sexual immorality can bring. But God gave us a safe place, marriage, where this is supposed to take place. And so 1 Corinthians chapter seven, after Paul, all throughout chapter 6 it's been dealing with what should not be done He now moves to marriage to give us a very vivid description of the place where it's safe to pursue all of these passions that God has given us and given us for good reason, and we'll get to that in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, I want to ask you, would you just join me in standing as we read this together? Standing as we read our main passage is just one way that we show our reverence for God's word, believing that he has spoken to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand this passage. And Lord, today as we talk about a subject that... Our culture can't stop talking about I pray that we would listen to you for it's in Christ's name that we pray amen you may be seated well throughout chapters 5 6 and 7 we've been looking at this subject about glorifying God in your body and when we think about what does it mean to glorify God in your body first of all self-control is required in order to glorify God in your body So I want you to notice a couple of words here in this first set of verses 1 through 5. Notice in verse 2, the Bible talks about temptation, temptation. And then again in verse 5, the last part, it says so that Satan may not tempt you. So we see the Bible speaking about temptation. And then the other word that I want to point out to you that we'll talk about more in a moment is self-control control. So the Bible teaches us here about temptation. And so I want you to understand something, and I, I know those of you that are older already understand this, but I think we have a lot of young people, we have a lot of new believers that don't fully understand this, that everyone experiences temptation. Temptation. And everyone experiences temptation to engage in sexual immorality. And if you don't understand what temptation is, you don't know how to deal with it or how to respond to that or even how to feel about having been tempted. So it's important to understand, first of all, that temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 about the temptation of Jesus. It says... For we do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus as our high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted, and yet he was without sin. So temptation in itself is not, is not sin, So when you find yourself being tempted, you don't need to feel defeated. You don't need to feel weird or or dirty or feel like you've sinned. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. Temptation is an attack, and it can be an attack from without, as Satan tries to to tempt us up, to trip us up as he he tempts us. So as we think about where does temptation come from, it comes primarily from two sources. At first, it comes from within, from our own sinful nature. So here's what James says about temptation. James chapter one, verses thirteen through fifteen. He says, Let no one say, When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. When he is lured, And enticed, and here's the source, by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the Bible tells us that one source of temptation is our own desire. Now, the Bible's going to speak in this particular passage in Corinthians about desire, and it's going to refer to them as as passions. And God has certainly given us passions. And the Bible says this, what was the one God seeking? Holy offspring. So God gave us these passions— so that it would lead us to marriage in which we would produce children and raise them up to know and fear the Lord. This is the purpose of these passions. And when they're used in this way, they're good. But because we have a sinful nature that came about whenever sin entered the world, we're, we're now corrupted. Everything about us just doesn't work like it should. And that includes our passions. It becomes corrupted so that we sometimes seek perverted ways. Perverted meaning outside of God's design and plan, which would be anything really outside of one man and one woman committed together in marriage. And so when we have these desires, they, they tempt us. That's one source of temptation, it is our own sinful nature. But the other is, is Satan himself. The Bible says in verse 5 here that we just read a moment ago do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. And and here's why. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, Satan is, is not the opposite of God. He is the enemy of God, but he is a created being. He is a created being that that rebelled against God. He was an angel. And Satan rebelled against God, and the Bible says about a third of the angels followed him and rebelled with him. And so Satan can't be in all places at all time like God. He's not omnipresent like God is. But yet, when the Bible speaks about the work of Satan, it includes in that his organized work throughout the world as his demons carry out his... Agenda. And so the Bible says that Satan will tempt you. It was Satan himself. He didn't send a demon, but he went himself to tempt Jesus. In the Bible and the Gospel of Luke, after describing the temptations, three of them, that Satan attacked Jesus with, here's how it concludes. It says in verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that phrase until an opportune time. If you're a note-taker, I would encourage you to write that phrase down until an opportune time. Because God has designed us and created us to live in a certain way and yet Satan wants to trip us up and get us outside of that way and he is looking for an opportune moment in your life when he can cause you to sin against God. He doesn't come when you're at your strongest. He looks for a moment when you're at your weakest. So Satan is already trying to seek out an opportune moment that he can trip you up don't help him out by creating opportune moments there are times in our life that we're weaker than others you ever gone to the grocery store hungry what happens you get you end up with enough groceries for a month right what happens when we when we find ourselves putting ourselves in situations When we're weak, we're more likely to yield and give in to temptation. So where does temptation come from? It comes within, with our own sinful nature. It comes without as we're we're attacked by Satan, who wants to destroy our lives and trip us up. Jesus said this about Satan. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. if you're thinking someday someday you'd love to have a beautiful family you'd love to have someone who loves you and you love them you'd love to have children that adore you i'm telling you satan does not want you to have that he wants to take all of that from you and so that's why we have to exercise self-control when temptation comes we have to resist temptation so how do we do this well the Bible tells us here that marriage is the place to fulfill our desires in verses 3 through 5 notice what it says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights likewise the wife to her own husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you might devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so, you know, if you're, if you're old enough to know what this is talking about, I don't really need to explain it to you. It's pretty clear in the Scripture what it says there. Marriage is the place for this to happen, and then it needs to happen. It needs to happen often, and that's how you resist temptation. That's the place that you fulfill those desires so that when you go out into the world, you go out wherever, you, you're not overcome in a moment of weakness. Satan's not going to find an opportune moment in your, in your life. So what if I'm not married? Well, that's when you have to exercise self-control until you get married. Some people are able to exercise self-control all of their life and remain single. Some people believe God has called them to be single, and it's, and it's great if they pursue that kind of life. That's what Paul did. But for everyone else, we, we, we were not able to maintain self-control for forever, so that's why we get married. Verse 2, or, or the second point I want to make today, it's not verse 2. You have to commit yourself to one person to glorify God in your body. So notice as Paul begins to talk about being single in verses six through eight. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. And so, so Paul is telling us that he's not about to command us we have to be single. He's just saying it's a concession. It's okay to be single. We know that, that God has given us a command to be fruitful and multiply, and God has designed marriage. But that, that's the general purpose of for the human race, it's okay for someone to, to choose to be, to be single. And so he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. And, and he, he was single. That's what he's talking about when he says, I wish everyone was like me. He says, but, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So so paul says if you, if you're able to maintain self-control and you feel like you have that gift from God you want you want to pursue some type of ministry you have things that you want to pursue in life he says it's okay, it's okay and I think that's an important reminder to us as we're harping on marriage and, and all these different things is just this just reminder that it, that it is okay if you uh, feel called to be single. John Stott was a great preacher and i, I don't I don't, I don't know, he didn't have a broadcast ministry like Dr. Stanley or Adrian Rogers, so you're probably not familiar with him, but just an, an incredible preacher of the last century and, and great leader. He influenced so many people in the ministry today. And he died, an old man, single. He was once asked about why he was single. And he said, "I believe that God has called me to this ministry of traveling and teaching and preaching." And Stott, Stott traveled the world. He was, a, he was a, uh, a British man who taught and preached everywhere, all around the world. And Stott said, I, "He said I've had opportunities. He said there have been there have been ladies that have been interested in me, and frankly, I was interested in them. But he said I began to pray about it, and I knew that." The ministry that God called me to was incompatible with a family. And so he said, I've chosen to be, to be single. It's okay to be single. God calls some people to, to be single. And that's what Paul was saying here. But outside of marriage, whether they're single for life, or whether they're single not yet married, we have to exercise self-control. So verse 9, he says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, what does marriage look like? Well, it's, it's meant to be a lifelong commitment. That's the ideal marriage. That's God's design. But We all know that, that every relationship we have is corrupted by sin, so it doesn't always work out that way. And I'd like to tell you that, that uh, you know, marriage is just everything about its wonderful bliss, but it's not. It's not. When Suzanne married me, she married a sinner, and I caused all kinds of problems for her, so she has to forgive me on a regular basis. But, but in general, in general, if you pursue it with the right heart and seek to serve one another, it's absolutely wonderful. When I think about my life today, I just don't really know how it could be any better uh, from my wife to my kids to everything, God has truly blessed me. And I've not been perfect in pursuing his plan, but I have tried to stay committed in my marriage. And God has blessed me because of it. And I want to encourage all of you who are married to do the same. For those of you who are not married, you need to understand that outside of making a commitment to follow Christ, the, is the, the biggest commitment you'll ever make in your life is not something to be taken lightly. When we come together for marriage, God means for us to be totally, absolutely committed. We were uh, 1994, I think it was. We were sitting out on Suzanne's mother's front porch, and we were we were talking about getting married. And I and I, I, I told her I said no. I said I said Suzanne, if you if you marry me, we we can never get divorced. And, and she kind of flippantly says, she says, she says I, I, I know. And I said, I said, no. I said, if you marry me, we can never get divorced. And, and later she, she told me, she says, you know, the first time you said it, it was kind of okay. He said, the second time you said it, you kind of freaked me out. She said, I thought, and he's really serious about this. And, and I was. And, and of course, you know, since then, as we've been married all these years, now I, whenever she gets cross with me, I, I, just, I just tease her and I said, "You know, you do understand that in the Baptist church, divorced men can't pastor, but widowers can. So you better be careful." That's that's one hundred percent joke, right there. One hundred percent joke. We're committed. That that's that's God's plan. It's for two people. To be committed together. And so that's why in verse 10 he says. To the married I give this charge. Not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does. She should remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Well here's what. What Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter nineteen, this is a passage where the Pharisees were once again trying to trip Jesus up, and and so they asked him this question about divorce. So verse three it says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Now notice this phrase. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, every wedding ceremony I've ever performed, I've always quoted that verse. Verse. What therefore God has joined together. Let men not separate. And I, I think most people think that what we're talking about is that they have become married. But that's not really what we're talking about. It's not what the Bible is talking about. It says, back up one verse that we just read. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's through this interaction that God takes two people and makes them like one. And the Bible says this is God's design. And What God is doing together, man shouldn't separate. And so he says, so, so, so again, they're, they're trying to trip him up. So they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So it, it's important to understand just because God will allow something doesn't mean that his, his design for us. And by the way, the background there is uh, Moses was not in any way promoting divorce. He was regulating it. People were uh, getting divorced and, and women were not able to remarry. And in that ancient uh, society, it was just not possible for a woman unless she was independently wealthy to provide for herself. And Moses said, well, if you're going to abandon your wife, you've got to give her a certificate of divorce so she can remarry. So he's not in any way encouraging it. He was regulating it. And here's what Jesus says. Now I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and and notice this phrase, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus said if you divorce your wife and you marry another, you're committing adultery. But he said except, there's an exception that Jesus spells out, except for sexual immorality. Well, why would Jesus say that if there's sexual immorality involved. It's not adultery to leave that person and be with someone else. Why would he say that? Because marriage, as God has designed it, is ultimately it's a sexual contract to be exclusive to one another. And if somebody's broken it, they've already broken up the marriage. It's what Jesus is teaching us here. And so you have to commit yourself to one person in order to glorify God in your body. And sometimes we get, uh, we get saved later in life after we're married. And because of that, we're perhaps married to someone who is not a believer. But the Lord teaches us that we should never seek to be in that situation. If we, uh, if we ended up in that situation because we, uh, we got saved later in life, it's okay but we don't don't seek out someone to marry who doesn't share our faith. So verse 12 through 16, this is what he's talking about. He says, to the rest I say, not not I, but uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the Bible teaches us that, that we're to be equally yoked, meaning we're to marry somebody that shares our faith. But maybe you got married, and then later you got saved. And so you're with somebody who doesn't share your faith. The Bible says, don't, don't leave them because of that. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy well, we don't have time to go into great detail about that but but holy means separated and set apart It doesn't mean that the unbelieving person is saved but it means that God honors that marriage and that child is able to be raised to know and fear the Lord even though one of the parents is not a believer so he says in verse 15 but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. Now, so the Bible tells us here that that if you get saved and your spouse decides they're just not going to live with you any longer. They don't want to live like that. They don't believe what you believe. And they decide to leave you because of it. The Bible says, well, just let, let them go. It's okay. Just let them go. Don't seek it. Don't initiate it, but just let them go. Verse 16, for for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the Bible tells us here that when you're married to an unbeliever, you don't have any way of knowing if they'll ever be saved. You may wish and want that they'll come to faith, but they may not. You don't know if they're going to come to faith in Christ. And so, if they decide they're 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 not going to live with you because you're in this new lifestyle, of following Christ, and they want to abandon you, don't think. Well, if, if the rest of my life I just I just stay with them, I I can perhaps convert them. Maybe, maybe not. The Bible says we don't know if they will or they won't. So just let them go. Let them go. Oftentimes, I see young people trying to get they get married and. It's almost like their strategy for evangelism. It's usually young ladies who have the best of intention and you know, talk to me about getting married. And, and, and I'll say, well, is, is this person a, is a believer? And they said, no, but I I, I, really, think, I really think that once we get married and uh, they just keep seeing me in church and seeing me reading my Bible, I, I, I really think that, that they're, I think he'll come to church with me and, and I, I sometimes people call me a pessimist, I don't think I'm a pessimist, I'm a realist and I always tell young people that you know once you get married it's just, it's just all downhill after that, I mean right now they are on their absolute best behavior, doing things that they would never do to try to impress you and win you over and if in the midst of all that they won't come to church with you, don't think for a moment that once you get married they're all of a sudden going to come to church with you getting married to an unbeliever is not a good evangelism plan so we should never seek to marry an unbeliever for the purpose of bringing them to faith. The Bible says, for how do you know a wife? Whether you will save your husband. or How do you know a husband? Whether you will save your wife. Well, <clears throat> in, in this passage, you know, the Bible's brought up a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't have brought up, brought up on my own. But we need to hear about it. As I look at the world and I read the news and I see movies and I look at social media The world is forever talking about it. Sometimes it talks about it very explicitly in songs, commentaries. Sometimes it talks about it in a very artistic way through images it shows us and through relationships portrayed in movies. The world is constantly talking about sex. And and young people are growing up in this environment where they constantly hear messages about it. And unfortunately, the messages they're hearing are very perverted, Self-destructive messages. I want to encourage you today to listen to God's message. Here's what he tells us. He's given us these passions for a reason. He gave us these passions so that we would want to get married. The Bible says, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God gave us these passions so that we would get married, we'd bring children into the world, and we would raise them up to know the Lord. God gave us that command to be fruitful and multiply, and he gave us his passions to motivate us. Anytime that you pursue those outside of the safe place of marriage that God has given us, there's consequences. Sometimes they're immediate, sometimes they're long-term. God can forgive you, you can even be completely redeemed from a life of sexual immorality.